Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to History of Europe, Key Battles, The Livonian Wars, 1558-1583, to Part 4 of 4. In the first three parts, I've covered many subjects, including the reign of Ivan the Terrible, the Seven Years' War between Sweden and Denmark, and the fall of the Teutonic Knights, or Livonian Order. If you haven't listened to those previous parts, then now might be a good time to do so. But if you already have, or would like to continue anyway, then let's begin. The final years of Ivan IV were dominated by warfare. He was determined to conquer Livonia for Muscovy. To try and break the stalemate, the Tsar looked for support to the younger brother of King Frederick II of Denmark, Magnus, offering him the chance to rule Livonia and Estonia as Muscovy's vassal. Magnus travelled to Moscow to take an oath of allegiance to Ivan as his overlord and received a charter for the vassal kingdom of Livonia. The territories of the new kingdom, however, still had to be conquered by Magnus with Russian military assistance and finance. He first set about besieging Rival, but its citizens defended stoutly. They poured water on the battlements, which froze to a smooth surface, making it impossible for Magnus's soldiers to climb up. After several months of siege, the Estonians were relieved by a Swedish fleet, and Magnus was forced to retreat. Ivan was frustrated at the lack of progress in the war, and became more concerned when Poland and Lithuania merged in the Union of Lublin, 1569. Only a couple of years previous, Sigismund Augustus, King of Poland and Grand Duke of Lithuania, embroiled in an internal battle to unite his realms, had offered to Ivan IV to cede parts of Livonia, Dorpat and Narva, and surrounding towns. Ivan now arrogantly insisted on further territories to the west and the port of Riga. Now things had changed. A united Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was potentially far more of a threat to Muscovy's interests. After its order, Sigismund Augustus died in 1572, the election of a new king commenced. From a wide array of candidates, the man chosen was Henry Valois, brother of King Charles IX of France. King Henry was forced to swear a series of conditions, laying down the constitutional obligations of the monarch. 
he never settled well in Eastern Europe, disappointed by the poverty of the Polish countryside and offended by the extravagant drinking habits of the Polish court. He disliked the Italian furnishings of the royal castle and ordered a complete refit. After a few months on hearing of Charles IX, his brother's sudden and unexpected death, Henry slipped away to return to his homeland to take the French throne. The Poles, unsure whether there was now an interregnum or not, sent Henry an ultimatum. If he did not present himself in Krakow by the 12th of May, 1575, the throne would be declared vacant. Henry replied that he had every intention of keeping the Polish throne and suggested sending his younger brother as viceroy. The Poles would have none of it and called a new election. An electoral council was organised for November 1575, for which there were at least half a dozen serious contenders. Alfonso d'Este II, Duke of Ferrara, put himself forward, as did Ivan the Terrible, whose troops were ravaging the eastern borderlands at the time. As a condition, he stated that Livonia and Ukraine must be transferred directly to Muscovy. Other candidates were King John of Sweden and two Habsburg's Archdukes. Finally, there was Stephen Batoru, the Prince of Transylvania. After much diplomatic toing and froing, a clear contest emerged between Stefan and the Habsburgs. The Senate wanted to choose the Holy Roman Emperor, Maximilian II, but the noble class, the Schlachter, overrode their decision and decided on Stefan Batoru. Stefan had not actively sought election for himself, but had been approached by those interested in excluding the Habsburgs. He was 42 years old, a hardened campaigner who for the last 15 years had fought as commanding general in the long struggle of his native province for independence. He was a fervent Catholic, but ruled over a state where different religions enjoyed autonomy. On news of his election, Stefan hurried over the Carpathians and was crowned in March 1576. In his new realm, the new king of Poland faced many challenges. The city of Danzig did not recognise his election to the Commonwealth throne and instead supported the candidature of Emperor Maximilian. And on the southern frontiers, the Tatars had just launched the biggest raids in Polish history. According to Norman Davis, Devlet Jure led a horde of 100,000 men into Ruthenia, and when they returned, their numbers had been doubled by the captives they had taken. Also, for the last four years, while Poland Lithuania had been struggling to find a successor, Ivan had been renewing his attacks. In September 1572, a Russian army crossed into Lithuania, capturing Weissenstein, today the town of Paide, in central Estonia, in January 1573. Aware of the danger in his southern frontier, Ivan did not commit all his forces on the campaign and adopted a defensive position the next year. The year after that, 1575, the Muscovites appeared outside Rival, but made no attempt to besiege the city, though they did capture the town of Parnu, in western Estonia, from the Poles. Stefan also initiated reform, both judicial and of the military. He made peace with the Ottomans, who were at war with Persia, and made agreement with the Cossacks, who lived in the unruly southern provinces of the Commonwealth, and traditionally lived in a Tatar style of looting and pillaging. All the time he realised the main task was to protect his people from the predations of his eastern neighbour, Muscovy.
Between January and March 1577, the Muscovites conducted another unsuccessful siege of Raval, a prelude to the full-scale summer invasion of the region led by Ivan personally. Stefan was still busy asserting his authority in Danzig, and so unable to respond to the Livonians' desperate pleas for help. With an army of some 30,000 men, Ivan attacked the town of Dalgavpilz in southeastern Latvia, whose small Polish garrison surrendered without a fight. The nearby town of Kognese attempted to avoid the same fate by putting themselves under the protection of Magnus, the same man who had before paid homage to Ivan in exchange for the granting of what turned out to be an empty title of King of Lavania. Magnus was now acting independently and trying to capture towns on his own account. Ivan sent a strong force to take the town from his old ally. The German garrison in the citadel put up resistance but were executed for doing so, and Ivan left a strong garrison in this key fortress. Then, in late August, the Tsar arrived at the town of Venden, today Sessis, in Latvia, the Livonian order's former capital. He arrested Magnus, who was conducting a desultory siege, and the town was quickly captured. The last 300 defenders, men, women and children, retreated to the castle's main tower and died in an explosion of gunpowder stored in the tower. It is unclear whether this was accidental or they chose to blow themselves up rather than face the wrath of the Tsar. The captured town of Venden was a big symbolic victory for Ivan, who was now in possession of the whole territory of Livonia, except for three locations. Raval, owned by Sweden, Riga, held by Poland Lithuania, and the island of Ursel, a possession of Frederick II of Denmark. Ivan boasted proudly of his successes in the letter to Prince Kerbsky. Quote, we have gone far beyond the far-off towns where you sought refuge, and on the legs of our horses we have ridden all over your roads, from and into Lithuania. End quote. Meanwhile, King Stefan Botoro was besieging the rebel city of Danzig. After a siege of six months, the city's army of 5,000 mercenaries were defeated in battle on the 16th of December 1577, which forced them to come to an agreement. The siege was lifted with recognition of the city's legal privileges in exchange for reparations and recognition of Stefan as sovereign. Now Stefan was free to turn his attention to the problem in Livonia. He allied with King John III of Sweden, who sent significant aid to bolster Rival. Already in November, Lithuanian forces started an offensive from the south and recaptured the town of Daugavpils. Despite resistance from a Muscovite army of 22,000 soldiers, the Lithuanian-Swedish alliance made good progress and recaptured Venden soon after. A Muscovite attempt to retake it in February 1578 was beaten back. Polish cavalry then moved on to take further towns in Lithuania and secured the hold of western Livonia. A Swedish force, meanwhile, defeated a Muscovite army near Parandu and raided into Muscovy itself, reaching as far as Novgorod. In September of the same year, Ivan, with an army of 18,000, launched a massive counter-attack at Venden. Yet the smaller force of some five to 6,000 Swedes, Poles and Germans defended resolutely. The Muscovite cavalry were driven off, leaving the infantry exposed. They were attacked from all sides, and the carnage continued until nightfall. 
Russian casualties were substantial. Several high-ranking boyars, over 20 guns and a 1,000 horses were captured, and the Swedish infantry rode back to Reval in triumph. This battle of Venden, 1578, proved to be a turning point in the war, after which the situation deteriorated further for Ivan. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Tsar's failure to secure his conquests in Livonia reveals the problems faced by all sides in the Livonian War. It was relatively easy to capture castles and settlements, most of whose fortifications were now obsolete, but they were difficult to hold on to once an enemy returned in force. No single combatant possessed enough spare men to garrison all the fortresses they captured. For Muscovy, most of the army had to return to their estates at the end of the campaigning season. They lacked a strong enough navy to effectively besiege major port cities such as Riga and Reval and the tactics of devastation and destruction they employed alienated the local population. After the Russian defeat at Venden, Ivan IV proposed peace, but Stefan Batoru, who now had the military initiative, declined the offer. Seeing the first successes, the Polish Council agreed to vote for subsidies for continuation of the campaign, which would help fund the equipment and mercenaries required. The king's strategy was bold. Although his main goal was to expel the Russians from Lithuania, he decided the most effective course of action would be to take the fight directly to Muscovy. The Russian army of occupation in Livonia would then be forced to protect the Russian heartlands. The first target on King Stefan's list was Polotsk. His forces raced across the border with Muscovy, quickly capturing three fortifications. Ivan, unaware of his enemy's plans, sent one relief force to Plotsk, but other detachments to different destinations. Stefan's advance guard intercepted the reinforcements for Plotsk and drove them away. On August 11th, the king's forces appeared outside Plotsk and started bombarding the city walls. Ivan simultaneously had to deal with the Swedish invasion of eastern Livonia, so was forced to divert forces to try and defend Narva. Polotsk capitulated after three weeks, and the slaughter was dreadful. When the next Russian town, the town of Sokolfal, the defenders were massacred to a man. Numerous fortresses in the area surrendered throughout the autumn. Stefan Batora's next objective was the town of Veliki Luki, long staging area for Muscovite operations along the frontier. 
he proceeded east through Vitebsk, but just before reaching the Davina River, split his forces into three to sow confusion of his intentions. The Tsar found the king's deployments indecipherable. Forced to guess, he guessed wrong again and rushed his reserves to the wrong places. Within the month of August, the Poles had cut off all roads to Veliki Luki. In a perfectly timed move, King Stefan and his Chancellor, Jan Zamoyski, linked up on August the 26th, a few miles from their objective. By September the 5th, the walls of Velikiluki had been reduced to rubble by cannon and mines, and the town fell and was sacked. Further smaller towns were taken in September and October, while Polish cavalry raided Russian lands around Novgorod. In western Livonia, his troops took one town after another, while in the east the Swedes did the same. The success was so complete that the Polish-Lithuanian court assumed the war had been won. The council convened at the end of January 1581 and voted for funds to continue the campaign, but only on condition that it would be drawn to a close. With these finances, Stefan Bator recruited an expert force of foreign mercenaries and made his way to attack the city of Peskov. This major city was protected by walls eight miles long, 16 feet thick and 30 feet high, and was defended by 7,000 cavalry and 50,000 infantry. At the same time as the siege began in August 1581, a separate Polish detachment roamed as far as Lake Ladoga as a distraction. By now, an estimated 30,000 Russians had lost their lives in the war. 40,000 were held prisoner in Polish hands, and the Swedes, having taken the city of Narva, were advancing from the north. In desperation, Ivan sued for peace. He also resorted to sending an envoy to the Pope, complaining that unity of Christendom was being disturbed. The Vatican responded in the vain hope of moving forward a project of union between the Catholic and the Orthodox faiths. A papal envoy was sent to Moscow, but in truth it was just an attempted diversion by Ivan, who never had any intentions of compromising on issues of faith. The Polish troops dug in and began firing the artillery on September the 7th, and the next day made their first assault on the city walls. But the Russians rallied and pushed the assailants back with heavy casualties. After a month of heavy attacks, the besiegers had failed to make any headway. The Muscovite artillery, enclosed in the towers, fired back at the enemy. Meanwhile, every tunnel dug by the King's sappers had been discovered and destroyed. Meanwhile, King Stefan's main munition stockpile had blown up in an accident and his gunpowder had started to run out. New munitions had to be shipped in all the way from Riga. Repeated attempts to storm the city failed, thanks to the determined efforts of not only the defending garrison, but of the common townspeople, who worked hard to repair any breaches in the city walls with great speed. At the end of October, King Stephen withdrew to winter quarters and organised a blockade. But as it was clear the situation was a stalemate, he had to consider opening up negotiations. To keep up the pressure, he returned to Poland to request one last grant to sustain the siege until the next spring. He even committed his personal fortune to the cause. The pressure on Moscow was equally intense. Ivan was desperate not to give up Narva, but with a steadily deteriorating military situation, was forced into conceding practically every single gain he had made in Livonia. 
Finally, on January the 15th, 1582, the Treaty of Yam Zaporsky was signed, which imposed a ten-year truce and obliged Muscovy to relinquish all its conquests in Livonia, Poland and Lithuania. And so Ivan's campaign, which had begun in 1558 with some quick successes, ended 25 years later in catastrophic defeat and humiliation and no gains whatsoever. Ivan's dream of a passage to the Baltic within his realm lay in tatters. What's more, Estonia was now in the hands of a resurgent Sweden, and southern Livonia was now under the control of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. The only silver lining on the cloud for Muscovy was pride at the bravery and fortitude showed by inhabitants of Peskov in the defence of their city. King Stefan Batova's triumph had been spectacular, quickly turning round the fortunes of his newly won kingdom and defeating the much-feared Muscovite army. But the triumph was short-lived. After arguing in vain for funds from the Polish council for further adventures, notably a crusade against the Crimean Tatars, he died suddenly in December 1586, perhaps poisoned. As for Ivan the Terrible, he sank deeper into despair and mental anguish as domestic tragedy stalked his final years. In a brief flash of anger at some obstacle to his will, he struck his pregnant daughter-in-law Elena with a staff, and when his eldest son, Ivan, intervened, struck him as well. Elena miscarried, and the young Ivan died from his injuries five days later. In one moment of anger, Ivan had killed both his heir apparent and his grandchild. The Tsar was beside himself with grief, tearing at his hair and beard like a madman. The consequences for Russia were profound. Ivan's remaining adult son, Fyodor, became his successor, yet none of the qualities required to be Tsar, and the country was heading for its bleakest period of all, a civil war and the times of troubles which threatened the very existence of the Muscovite state. When Ivan died on 19th of March, 1584, writes Robert O'Cromney in his book The Formation of Muscovy, 1304-1613, to Quote, he left his weak heir a devastated country. Over the course of his reign, a thriving economy had fallen into depression and important areas of the country had suffered catastrophic loss of population. Ivan's majority began with significant reforms, but his obsession with his own security led him into destructive experiments and reigns of terror. He lashed out indiscriminately, destroying individuals and households and demoralising the rest of the ruling elite. When Ivan died, then Muscovy was an exhausted and deeply troubled country. The perceptive English writer Giles Fletcher looked at Russia's future with foreboding. As he suggested, Ivan's subjects were to pay dearly for his sins. End quote. Janet Martin is damning of Ivan's legacy in her book Medieval Russia, 980 to 1584. Quote, the reign of Ivan IV, the terrible was, in short, a disaster for Muscovy. Ivan's dynastic line faced extinction. His subjects were impoverished, his economic resources depleted, his army weakened, and his realm militarily defeated. End quote. As for his nickname of the terrible, what began as a mistranslation came to be the verdict of history.
The economic crisis was particularly grave in the Novgorod region, whose population fell by more than 80% in the early 1580s when compared to the mid-16th century. By the end of Ivan's reign, peasants had abandoned 70-98% to of arable land throughout the country, according to Sergei Bogotyev in the Cambridge History of Russia. The authorities sought to stop this practice by limiting the mobility of the peasants. Irregular at first, such measures later resulted in the establishment of serfdom in Russia. Nevertheless, in Ivan's first period of rule, he did achieve some reforms and helped Muscovy on its way to a centralised state. The royal family received a new status during a transformation of the concept of its power, which began with Ivan's coronation as Tsar and culminated into turning him into a sacred figure. Ivan began some administrative reforms and the creation of institutions to create a more coherent state. Yet he never completed them as he became distracted in his later years. He did leave a legacy, though, that in order to unite and mobilise, Russian rulers had to be harsh and overbearing. Writes Geoffrey Hoskin in his book Russia and the Russians, in the absence of fully established local institutions and settled laws, the authority of the state in the regions amounted to no more than the caprice of the local leaders. What Ivan set in motion was not state-building, but the normalisation of personal dominance. Isabel de Madariaga writes that the capriciousness and cruelty of Ivan's rule, coupled with the destructiveness of the whole idea of the Oplichnina, served only to delay state formation. In spite of all this, the Muscovite state was coherent enough to survive the stormy events to come. My name is Carl Weilert and you've been listening to History of Europe, Key Battles podcast. As always, it would be great to hear from you. You can write directly to me, carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net, or come and visit the Facebook page for the podcast. Please join me next time when I will talk about the French Wars of Religion. Until then, thank you for listening and goodbye. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.